We're going to be reading this morning from Nehemiah chapter 4. We are in a series going through the book of Nehemiah. John Tavius was given the difficult task of covering chapters 3 and 4 this morning. Uh, so we are not going to read that entire text, but we're going to be reading Nehemiah chapter 4 beginning in verse 15. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a copy of God's Word this morning, the text should be on the screen. So you can follow along with me. This is Nehemiah chapter 4 beginning in verse 15. God's word reads this way. When our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building, and the trumpeter was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is enormous and spread out, and we are separated far from one another along the wall. Wherever you hear the trumpet sound, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work while half of the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let everyone and his servants spend the night inside Jerusalem so that they can stand guard by night and work by day. And I, my brothers, my servants, and the men of the guard with me never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon even when washing. This is the word of the Lord. What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. I'm leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. Leaning on the everlasting arms leaning oh i'm leaning safe and secure from all alarms Everlasting arms. 
Amen. Good morning. Good morning. I'm surprised Cody didn't lead us in singing How Late Thou Art since the daylight savings have uh, caught all of us slipping a little bit. Um, thank you, Andy, for reading our passage this morning. Um, as he's uh, stated, the text, the printed text is Nehemiah chapter 4, uh, but we're going to be in conversation with uh, chapters 3 and 4 on this morning. Uh, before I begin, I just want to thank uh, Cody Gibbons and James Fuqua and Wes Watcher for their work and uh, the men's retreat we had on Friday. Uh, if we can, can we just give them a round of applause because uh, it was a wonderful time. We had a really good time. We ate good. Uh, Wes really did a great job uh, leading us in a devotional that allowed us to really sit in the silence, meditating on Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Um, thank you guys for having me again, having me back. And uh, I just want to give a little bit of a head nod to my wife, Victoria. Uh, she's so beautiful, and she always supports me. And I just want to use this moment to say thank you. I'm excited about Grayson's ordination on tonight. I'm excited to see him walk into something that uh, all of us within his GC uh, have watched him uh, do and walk into. Um, and I'm excited about our prayer and fasting guides. Uh, in this season of Lent, we're praying and we're fasting together. So I encourage you, if you haven't already, to pick up a copy out there at the Connect table. or there's, It's also been posted online. Uh, my prayer is that in this season of Lent that we approach Resurrection Sunday with hearts that are palpitating for God, wanting to see his kingdom be, his will be done on this earth more and more. So we'll dive into the text. I'm going to be talking from the title, Double the Rubble. Andy's walked us uh, up until this point, so you know that the, the wall for the people of God has been destroyed. Uh, they've been tasked with rebuilding it. Nehemiah has had a care. He's cried, and now he's gotten to work on rebuilding the wall. And so I'm going to take the baton from Andy and walk us a little bit further into this text, into the passage, into the message from Nehemiah. He was a man born into the world to shake the nations, the menace of all lands, who in some way terrified all mankind by the dreadful rumors noised abroad concerning him. He was haughty in his walk, rolling his highs hither and thither, so that the power of his proud spirit appeared in the movement of his body. He was indeed a lover of war, yet restrained in action, mighty in counsel, gracious to suppliance, and lenient to those who were once received into his protection. Attila the Hun is quoted as saying, it is unfortunate when decisions are made by chieftains headquartered miles away from the front where they can only guess at conditions and potentialities known only to the captain of the battlefield. When asked how Attila the Hun could have conquered such a vast array of lands and even rival the legions of the Roman Empire with seemingly only a few thousand rabble-rousing henchmen, one descendant remarked this. He said, Attila inspired his men with fiery passion for one reason, because in the heat of battle, Attila's men would look to the side and see their general swinging his sword right beside them. And that's where we're going to dive into this text. 
because that's the posture of leading. That's the posture of good leadership. I know we said we don't want to be cliche and make Nehemiah all about principles for good leadership, but I cannot ignore it here in this particular passage. It's right here in chapter 3. Those who are willing to step into the task and walk with those who are at their command, that's good leadership. We see this demonstrated beautifully really throughout the canon of Scripture, but specifically here in the account of Nehemiah, chapter 3, verse number 1. The Bible says that the, even the high priest, Eliashib, and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. Now, the high priest presents himself as an exceptional, exceptional leader in that he's willing to roll up his sleeves and begin the hard, laborious, dirty work of rebuilding the portion of the wall that was closest to the entrance of the temple for sacrifice. Now, with the high priest doing this, how could anybody else refuse the, the mundane, the seemingly menial work of repairing the sheep gate? Because the high priest is sitting right there doing it. That's the difference, people, between a boss and a leader. A boss is going to tell you what to do. A leader is going to demonstrate. He's going to show you what he requires of you. Now, normally, high priests and any, any of the priests didn't engage in this type of menial work, but Eliashib demonstrates great humility and not being afraid to put his hands to the plow, to use the sweat from his own brow, to put some skin in the game. Although sometimes people use chapter 13 of Nehemiah, you know, verse 21, where Nehemiah says, I will lay hands on you. Sometimes they use that to portray Nehemiah as a zealous and potentially violent servant of the Lord. But we see no indication in this text that these priests were in any way bullied into their service. No, Zach, they had a willingness to work. The Bible says in chapter 3, verse 1, that they consecrated this area, thereby highlighting the reality that they clearly saw their work as something that was holy. They're, they saw their work as something that was sacred. They saw their work as something to be hallowed. The Bible says they dedicated it. The sheep gate and the tower, they dedicated them both. They didn't give themselves over to the notions that life's rhythms are distinctly sacred and secular. Because you know, Josh, there's a long historical tendency for Christians, particularly in the West, to divide lives into sacred and secular. We try to contain all of our religious observance in the sacred space. You know, what we understand about God, our theology, what we do in this room on this morning. But in the secular sphere, we keep everything that's, you know, we consider mundane, you know, normal. Working, doing chores around the house, putting food on the table, washing dishes, changing diapers taking the car to get an oil change. But the problem with these two spheres is that if they drift far enough apart, hypocrisy is what breeds itself right there in the middle. That's why our contemporary, charismatic, consumeristic breed of Christianity, it just doesn't get the job done. Because instead of allowing God to speak to the whole man, the whole woman, Melanie, we relegate his jurisdiction to only certain things. Yeah, you can tell me about God, but just don't tell me about how to live my life. You can tell me how I ought to uh, serve him and worship him and where, where I ought to give, but don't tell me how I ought to treat my spouse or raise my children. We don't want God in those things, and yet Paul stands adamantly opposed in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. This is what he says. He says, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. That's the posture 
of good leadership. We see it right here in the text, the kind of leadership that sees God dripped and draped all over the work that we do. I'm reminded of just last week. We had a leader within our church, an elder. Emulate this, model this before us. It's raining cats and dogs. There's a torrential downpour. As soon as we give the benediction, people are trying to get to their cars. People are swimming to get to their cars. And one of our elders takes it upon himself to throw that raincoat on, pick up his umbrella, and walk people, accompany them to the car because that's godly leadership. He doesn't ask someone else to do it. He puts himself right out there in the front. And I thank God for you, Buster, because your example spoke to me directly. That's good leadership. We don't ask anyone to do anything that we aren't willing to do or haven't already done because we are still the church even after the benediction. But this chapter is more, it's about more than just good leadership, obviously. It shows more than just the posture of leading. It also shows proximity, close proximity to the rubble, to the wreckage, close proximity to the work. You see, most of the varied groups of people who are assigned to work on specific portions of the wall, they're, giving to, they're given orders to work near their own homes. Chapter 3, verse 28, each of the priests made repairs above the horse gate. Here it is, each opposite his own house. Chapter 3, verse 26, then the temple servants living on Orphel made repairs opposite the water gate, each towards the east tower that just out, juts out. Chapter 3, verse 10. After them, Jedediah made, repra- made repairs across from his house. Chapter 3, verse 23. Benjamin and, and Hasub made repairs opposite their house. Beside them, Azariah made repairs beside his house. Because the work being closer to home usually yields more commitment. It's hard to ignore who and what you have to see every single day. I mean, it's not as if any of us are actively turning our faces away from suffering or the decrepit living conditions of our brothers and sisters. Instead, what we do is we make sure we never have to see it by doing our best to avoid it. On our way to work, we take the longer commute to avoid the homeless person on 31st or 22nd or perhaps refusing to look into that corner of the coffee shop because you know Mr. or Mrs. so-and-so, they're going to hit you up for some spare change. In some cases, we're drawn, we're more drawn to the needs 25,000 miles away because in the long run, it's easier to forget than the suffering that's across town, across the street, perhaps sitting right beside you or sitting behind you. I mean, I've seen kids go on missional evangelistic trips 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 miles away where they jump right in and share the gospel with zeal, with fervor, ambition, motivation. And it's a wonder that we don't see that here at home in the same way. You know why? Because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You can go and be whoever you want to be 10,000 miles away. People go in, they share the gospel. They go in and they meet needs with such fervor because those people don't have to see how you live over here. They don't see your life over here. They don't see how you treat your spouse. They don't watch you love your neighbor. They don't look at you speak truth with love. Don't get me wrong. I'm greatly humbled when I'm asked to go and speak somewhere else, but I do so with the understanding that the real work is in the everyday living with my GC, loving on them, praying for them, checking in on them, praying for my brother Andy, 
praying for John and Alyssa and their two twins, praying and meeting with Lakia, meeting needs for our sister Denisha. That's where the real work is. It's close to home. It's close because attention to detail, the commitment, the convictions are more intense when and where you have skin in the game. Luke chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus talks about a man who was going down from Jericho, excuse me, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, they beat him, they fled, they left him half dead, and a priest happened to be going down the same road, but when he saw him, Jesus says that this priest passed on the other side. This, similarly, with a Levite, when he arrived, he saw the man and passed on the other side. Now, the priest and the Levite, both of them are religious officials. They saw their Jewish brethren lying in this terrible condition, but neither of them did anything. They both passed on the other side, the other side, the other side. See, because we love to distance ourselves from the plight of others. We love to act like we don't see the hurt, the poverty, the ignorance, the selfishness, the greed, the racism. But Jesus does the exact opposite. He doesn't wait until he sees the hurting. He goes and he searches it out. EM doctors run 12, 15, sometimes 24, 36-hour shifts in the hospital's emergency room. Usually, uh, it's an extremely hectic place. The emergency room sometimes goes through lulls where there's not a lot of action. When these times of perturbed quietude occur, the EM doctor usually retires to a space near the trauma center where they can be reached quickly if another emergency arises. The on-call room allows them to respond promptly where they are most needed. Andy, are we a church that's on-call? Buster, are we near the spaces that produce the most trauma? Are we ready to jump in and meet needs where they are most severe? Or do we require people to show us their insurance before we can help them? You know insurance. Do you believe like I do? Insurance. Do you vote like I do? Insurance. Do you work like I do? Do you spend your money like I do? Show me your insurance, then I can help you. On the contrary, when we examine the life of Jesus, we see in John chapter 4, verse 4, that Jesus intentionally went right through where these same people were dwelling. The word of God describes it this way. He must needs go through Samaria. The Pharisees would often take the longer road to avoid contact with the people of Samaria, but Christ's life and work demanded that he go and teach in Samaria. He says, he's saying, it's necessary that I be close to where I'm most needed. Jesus is a friend of sinners, and he's, he has close proximity to the wreckage of our lives that sin has caused. There's a need to be close to the rubble because you need to be where you are needed. And this passage is not just about the posture of leading or close proximity to the rubble, to the wreckage, but it's also about participation in the rebuild. And you know you weren't going to get a sermon from John Tavius without a J.R. Tolkien quote. You knew that. Farmers, farriers, stable boys, these are no soldiers. Most have seen too many winters or too few. Interestingly enough, no one here in this particular passage is described as a skilled wall builder or construction foreman. Similar to the host of the West about to defend themselves at Helm's Deep and J.R. Tolkien's The Two Towers, they're having to fight with farmers, 
barriers, people who are unqualified, ill-equipped to mount a, a right defense against the host of Saruman. And yet, if you've seen the movie or if you've read the books, they still get the job done. Because the work of ministry is not for the professionals. It's not for the experts. You know, experts are far more likely to lean on their own understanding. One, per, one swipe down the Twitter sphere will let you know that. I hope I'm not the only one in this room on this morning who trusts God enough with the trajectory of this ministry, with this vision, with this calling to let God be the expert. I know I'm not the only one who can admit that I'm not an expert at what I'm doing. I'm just trusting God with the results. I don't have all of my T's crossed or have all my I's dotted, but I'm trusting God with this. And wherever he needs me, that's where I'm going. If I have to go by myself, that's where I'm going. If it costs me a little bit more of my time or my talent, I'm still going where he says go, and I'm going to put the work in where he tells me to because this kind of work is not for the know-it-alls. This ain't for the wise guys. It's not for the deep or the dapper or the dashing. This type of work is for those who possess enough humility to put their hands to the plow and when necessary raise their hands and say, Father, I stretch my hand unto thee. No other help I know. That's the essence and the force behind every member ministry. God brings people from different backgrounds who probably wouldn't be eligible someplace else to work and to build something outside of the norm. That's what we're doing here, Trill. I'm pretty sure as children and teenagers, Buster and Andy and Zach and Hunter and Cody and Rick, they probably didn't see themselves being members of a church that's seeking to be a diverse community of disciples, working out the implications of the gospel in our everyday lives, not only knowing what lines us up vertically, but also lines us up horizontally. It takes every hand being put to the plow to make this work because just like in Nehemiah, we are faced with enormous, unrelenting opposition on every side. People say things like, you know, it's never going to work. Oh, that, that, that's not part of the gospel. You guys aren't really serious. This is all just for show. And I can tell you the work of ministry is a lot more challenging when you've got a room full of voices instead of a room full of hands. This work requires everyone's participation. That's how we keep the ship moving forward. Because, you know, when the winds are not against or not with ourselves, we've got to have people willing to get down to the bottom of the ship and help row us towards our destination. Every time, Grayson, you open up your home for DNA or gospel community, every time, people, you show up early to get this sacred space of worship in line, every time you're willing to have the tough conversation on racially charged incidents with someone from outside of your echo chamber, every time you hold umbrellas buster, every time you invite someone to worship with, you every time you share the vision of this church on social media over the dinner table at Thanksgiving you are putting your hands to the plow but can I tell you something the church today is not full of hands we're full of opinions we got arguments we got observations we've got supervisors we ain't got no soldiers that's what Aragorn says he says these are no soldiers but he doesn't see that ultimately the victory is in the hands of the Lord we got opinions but what we need is soldiers James Boyce says it like this Unfortunately, many churches have had it completely turned around. It is said that today the church is more than anything else. It resembles a football game played in a large stadium. There are 80,000 spectators in the stands who badly need some exercise, and there are 22 men on the field who badly need a rest. 
But I can tell you something else about James' illustration. Even in his hypothetical scenario, I guarantee that every person on the field sees themselves as a part of a team, a group, a community. They see themselves as part of something bigger than their comforts or bigger than themselves. And the people in the stands, at best, they might see themselves as followers of a team that they watch but don't participate in. And at worst, they see themselves as a bunch of individuals who just so happen to be in the same place at the same time. It gets worse because that's the culture of today's church. That's the climate of our westernized Christian theology. Just a bunch of individuals. But this text doesn't show individuality. It shows us a people who see their very lives as being part of something bigger than themselves. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 16, from that day on, half my men did the work, while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people of Judah. Who? How many? All the people of Judah who were building the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building, and the trumpeter was beside me. It was bigger than their comfort. It was bigger than their itemized concerns, bigger than their inconvenience. They, they put those things on the back burner, back burner to participate in the rebuild. This passage is not just about participation in the rebuild. It's not just about every member ministry. It's not just about being close to the rubble. It's not even just about the posture of learning. It's also about the byproduct of learning. There's a plural perception here. We must develop the ability to pray and protect. They are warring while they're working. Verse 18 says, each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building. Nehemiah calls God's people to more than just work. He calls the people of God to more than just warfare. They are called to live in contrast, which is war and work simultaneously. It is a peculiar sensation this uh, double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks in on assumed contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. The words of W.E.B. Du Bois illustrate how black people have long known how to operate in two Americas, one that is white and one that is black. Du Bois describes this phenomena as double consciousness, which is the awareness of the two-ness of being an American and an African-American and the largely unconscious, almost instinctive movement between these two identities as needed, depending on the context. Nehemiah now, he leads the people to building while they are ready to fight at a moment's notice. The text even says they work with their swords right by their sides, illustrating the necessity of a dual nature in their existence, in the face of petrifying opposition. Our call as Christians is more than a one-sided effort. The Bible encourages us to watch and pray. Be strong and of good courage. There's a duality within the Christian walk. Just as Christ was both God and man, the hypostatic union, we are called to connect our humanity but also reflect godly character. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as one and only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Paul says it this way, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Paul even goes on in Philippians. He says this, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little. I know how to make do with a lot. Whether well-fed or hungry, in abundance or in need, I'm able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's a word that many of us who live on the margins are familiar with that you may not be. The word, the phrase is code switching. Code switching is using one dialect or register or accent or language over another, depending on the social or cultural context. We're using this to project a certain identity. As with any social behavior, we pick up linguistic norms and learn to code switch according to the context. Lord knows I want to put on a three-piece suit, but this is not the context. That's why I'm singing sermonic hymns, because I'm giving you an exposure to a different context. Here's an example. I could say the phrase, you good, and it can mean, are you okay? I could say the phrase, you good, and it can mean, do you want to fight, depending on the context. <laughs> but that's the level of awareness and cultural, and cultural familiarity that many people in this room just don't have. But that's the goal. That's why we're in this melting pot. So hopefully we can become better ministers of the gospel, no matter the context. That's what our witness needs. We need to have an ability to code switch. We need to develop an ability to rebuild and defend, to talk Augustine and Athanasius with the professors and yet still shoot hoops and talk apologetics with the zealots. As I canvass some local missional opportunities around the city that will probably put a lot of you in context that you're unfamiliar with, I sit back and I pause because many of our people are totally unaware of how real the struggle really is here in the city. But I hope. I hope we learn more and more to engage in contexts that differ from our own camps. Hopefully we begin to develop the ability to evangelize, befriend, make disciples in more than just contexts and settings that make us feel comfortable. Because oftentimes that's what our missional efforts are really about when we unpack it. We feel good. We can pat ourselves on the back because we did that thing. And that's why I sing sermonic hymns before I preach. That's why I lead songs that come from my particular context. It ain't for the people that know them already. I'm not singing black songs for the black people. I'm singing it for the white people so that you can begin to learn and familiarize yourself with these theological, these things of theological value that come from a camp outside of your own. That's the posture of learning. There's close proximity to the rubble. There's participation in the rebuild. There's the byproduct of learning. But this text is also about persistence while facing problems. You've got Sanballat and Tobiah. They're doing, here's a code switch word, they're selling wolf tickets, which means you're just talking a big game because you know you can't really back it up. A clear indication of worry and trepidation. And that's what people tend to do when they're deeply troubled and intimidated. Critics who bring nothing but discouragement often miss what God is doing. See, because they don't like the wall, they must think it's not God's work. Here's what he says. What are these pathetic Jews doing? Chapter 4. Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah, he jumps in. 
Even if a fox climbed up what they were building, he would break it down. Now, like most attacks of discouragement, there's a trace of truth in the words of the enemy. We see that even in the Garden of Eden. As builders, the Jews were feeble. They would not complete it in a day. They didn't have the best materials to work with. A lying, discouraging attack will often have a teeny tiny bit of truth in it. And this ought to be a chief lesson for you in your Christian walk today and for the rest of your life. Satan always opposes a good thing. The word of God does not paint a vivid image for Christians of a carefree, trouble-free existence. On the contrary, Jesus, in, he says it this way. He says, in this life, you will have trouble. Not if. He says, you will have trouble. And this runs in stark contrast to what we see play out over the television in our consumeristic, corrupted expression of Christianity in the West. You know, oftentimes the favor of God for many has become all about a life of ease and comfort. You'll hear people give testimony and say, you know, the Lord's hand was on it and we never had a problem. The Lord's hand was on it and we found $5 million outside. The Lord's hand was on it and no one had a problem with anything that we were doing. But when we look at the text, when we look at the scripture, when we look at the New Testament, we see the apostles dying in poverty. We see Jesus saying, uh, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. He's saying, are you ready for what this ministry is going to cost you? Are you ready to be misunderstood? Are you ready to be abandoned? Are you ready to be ridiculed? Sandballad and Tobias sought to bring the discouragement through criticism. Blake, that's what people on the sidelines always do. They critique. They analyze. They assess. They'll stand at a distance and audit everything without lifting a finger. And one thing I love about the Word of God is that it shows me more and more every day that people do not change. The same social mess they were dealing with back then is the same social mess we deal with today. People will stand back and become auditors even of our worship, irreverently sitting back and taking tally of what they like or what they don't like, what appeases them. I want to hear this song. Everything that appeases their sensibilities. I love when people tell me they didn't enjoy the worship because that gives me to quote Francis Chan and say, good, because we weren't worshiping you. Awesome. <laughs> people stand back and often become auditors. They stand on the sidelines in this work of reconciliation, and they throw critique where they have no skin in the game, and I'm tired of it. Don't just talk about what your grievance is Put work in where your grievance is. Be close to the rubble. Put your hands to the plow. People throw all kinds of Mazel Tov cocktails across the street. You know why? It doesn't cost anything. It costs nothing to only post on social media. But have you put practice with your post? Have you voiced your concerns with someone you disagree with face to face? Have you done life with someone or attempted to do life with someone from the other side? Have you lived in the tension that is authentic diversity, not assimilation? Have you lived in the tension that is authentic diversity that goes beyond the surface level? You know, hello, goodbye, those Jim Halpert faces we make at each other. <laughs> Have you lived in something that goes beyond uh, sitcom office level engagement? I'm asking a real question on this morning. Where's your skin in the game? 
we embrace one another in this church when it's not popular. We don't take our cues from talking heads on this side of the congressional aisle or that side. We persist when things get hard because it is the will of our God that we live as one. Eric Mason puts it this way. He asks a question. He says, what if the things that are happening are God's way of telling us it's time to wake up and act like family? Listen to me, though. That don't come easy. It does not come easy. There will be resistance from every side. So much hurt and pain has been dealt to my people, and when the church in America should have spoken out against it, she lamentably remains silent. There's a lot to rebuild here for sure, but I want you to listen and be encouraged at the words from the lips of Nehemiah. He says, the work indeed is enormous and spread out. We are separated far from one another along the wall. But then he pivots and says, but our God will fight for us. And we know Nehemiah believes this. Immediately after he recounts the insults from their oppression, you know, from Sanballat and Tobiah, in verse 4, he goes immediately into the prayer. Listen, our God, we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder into the land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. This is what's known as an imprecatory prayer. Now, I'm not telling you to go into prayer tomorrow and say, Lord, get them. I'm not telling you to do that. But what I'm trying to illustrate is that God can handle our emotions. In this season of Lent, this season of prayer and fasting, as you are dedicating your time and your, your time to God and you're trying to seek his face more intimately, understand God knows what it is to be abandoned. God knows what it is to be re, 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 rebuked. He knows what it is to be left alone, ridiculed, tossed out. He knows what it's like. We have not a high priest who can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. He knows what it is. Jesus cares all about our troubles. He will fight till the day is done. God can handle your emotions. Yes, when we survey the land, we can see there's a whole lot of work to be done. But don't be discouraged. Because as Andy has showed us over the last few weeks, Jesus is the better type of Nehemiah. If you need an example, you can always look to Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live for righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. He's our leader who has led by example. Luke chapter 19, verse number one. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, because today it's necessary for me to sit at your house. And you know what people said. 
They, got, they started complaining. They started auditing. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus told him because he's too son, a son of Abraham. The son of man has come to seek and save, not those who've been found. He's come to save those who've been lost. Because Jesus maintained close proximity to the rubble of sinful lives that have been wrecked by sinful lifestyles. And you ain't got to worry because Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, he who began a good work in you will begin to bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ because Jesus participates in our rebuild. He brings his shovel and he brings his sword. He's full of grace and truth. He's the lion who defends us and the lamb who restores us. He's the rock who sustains us and the redeemer who saves us. Matthew chapter 16 Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders the chief priests and the scribes be killed and be raised on the third day. And here comes Peter with his happy hips. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus told Peter, looked him in the face and said, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns. You're thinking about man's. Matthew chapter 26, he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Go a little further. And then Jesus fell down. And he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But here's the kicker. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Not my will, but your will be done. Because he persists even through opposition. That's our calling here today. If you need encouragement on how to live out each one of these things, just look to Christ. When you don't understand, look to Christ. When they walk out on you, look to Christ. When you're misunderstood or you're having a hard time understanding someone else, look towards Christ because he's the greater Nehemiah. He's the true high priest, the hypostatic union. He's both God and man, and that's the identity that we walk in. He gives us new life in Christ. You heard Buster read about how our life is hidden in him. We died with him in baptism. We're raised with him. And this ought to be our encouragement, John. When we're going towards the community, when we're doing missional efforts and we're doing outreach, when you're inviting people to church that don't look like you, lean on Jesus. You might get ridiculed. You might be rejected. But lean on Christ. He is the true high priest. Let us pray. Father, we, we've assembled, God, again, just looking towards you. We look around us all over the city, all over the nation. We recognize there's a lot of work to be done. And oftentimes, God, we find ourselves sometimes discouraged, sometimes fearful, but we thank you, God, that your word encourages us to lean on you, to lean on your everlasting arms. As we draw closer to you, we have nothing to fear, but we are your children. We are your sheep, and you are the great shepherd. God, we thank you so much for leaders within this church, God, members within this church who are committed to seeing the work be done, no matter the opposition, no matter the ridicule, no matter the critique, God. 
Father God, we look and depend. We lean on you. Even as we move forward, Lord, we ask you to rest in our hearts even through this Lent season. Help us to easily identify ways in which we can participate in rebuilding things around us. Help us to see the gospel implications at work. Help us to see the gospel implications in our communities. Help us to look and depend on your message as we raise our children and love our spouses, God. Help us to look towards you as the greater Nehemiah, rebuilding our lives and rebuilding our walls. Lord, help us. We stretch our hands to you. Touch those who've been hurt. Heal those who've been wounded, God. Help us to be the church you want us to be. Give us courage, oh God. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.